Hi, my name is Gunnar Froh and I'm your host on the Wonder Mobility Podcast. Welcome back to the Wonder Mobility Podcast, this time for the first time in English. We had launched this series in German and we had fascinating guests already on the show. And then we did get a lot of feedback about too bad we can't all uh, listen in. Our community is very international. And so we are just going to, from here on out, um, broadcast in English. Today, I have a very special guest on the show who I've known already for many years and who has a very fascinating and unconventional background. He's currently leading one of the biggest um, VCs, um, their European business in the mobility space. Welcome to the show, uh, Sohela Ofata from BMW. Hi, <laughs> Great to can be you, here. Can you um, take um, the community through your journey, basically, how you arrived at what you're doing today and what emphasis you're putting there? What, what are important topics for you? Lovely. So I've been in the startup ecosystem for around about 10 years, and I entered um, the startup space Uh, as part of the telecommunications industry. This was right at a time when a lot of those large uh, telco players were acquiring startups. Um, in my case, I was with a telco that particularly acquired a lot of startups in Tel Aviv. And that was a super interesting time because I had the opportunity to work a lot with the companies that were acquired. I was part of um, sort of the M&A uh, transactions. And the great part here was, and that was completely random, I have never planned for this, that I had a really strong connection um, on a cultural level to, um, to the teams that I worked uh, with because my, my parents are actually from Morocco and my father is from Marrakesh. And uh, we, we used to, um, you know, uh, have our fam one of our family residences in Marrakesh downtown back in what was the Jewish quarter because my grand-grandfather had a Jewish business partner. It was very unusual at that time. And it's still at my father's age, very unusual because my father went also to a Jewish school. Um, and this was very unique and helped me so much in just understanding the trades, the culture. And this was really what, what sort of paved the way for my success. Um, there's a very large community in Morocco still. And there are also in Israel, a lot of um, uh, Israelis with um, Moroccan descent. So I was, I was quite, you know, welcomed uh, when I arrived there and started to work with the teams. And that role developed over time to a role where I sort of been an operator with P&L responsibility. I led end-to-end -end teams uh, launching global services. I had up to 120 developers in my team. It was super interesting. I did have a tech background, so obviously that paved my way and helped me in doing that, but I've never planned for that. And this was right at a time when sort of WhatsApp came on the market. Facebook was, you know, grabbing more market share internationally. So it was just the best time to be in the telco space. I've learned a lot um, and I sort of entered the, the startup ecosystem through Tel Aviv, uh, which was an amazing ex experience for me. Um, and I've been in that, that role sort of for four years and then transitioned for a short time to the media space until I've been with a company who actually literally didn't take Netflix serious. And I, I, I just decided to leave them really quick because I thought that was an enormous mistake and entered the mobility space six years ago. And that was just a transition where I had two opportunities. I had an opportunity to actually work for a very large insurance company and build up their own online practice. Um, there was a huge contract that was actually a lot more attractive than the one that I took 
or take go to BMW iVentures and help building out their European practice, which I thought was the interesting or more interesting opportunity because mobility was also at a, at a point in time where you know disruption was in the air, the new business models were arising, Uber, Lyft, and all of these companies uh, were sort of uh, gaining more traction. And the 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 pattern that I had seen in the telco industry, being in a sort of startup related ecosystem, is most attractive when obviously things get shaken up and when uh, incumbents are challenged. So I took the role with BMW iVentures, which I have never regretted. It's been such an interesting ride so far and started to build out the European practice. As mentioned, this was right at a time when a lot of interesting companies were starting. Uh, the iVentures practice itself kicked off the activities based out of New York in 2011. And this has enabled the company and the group to just make very um, interesting investments. And this was right at a time when um, the automotive industry was transforming into a service-oriented business or sort of building up capabilities in the services space, put it this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all know how, how, how that is sort of um, transitioned over time. So the venture activities were part of a new business initiative, if you wanted to say so, in the mobility space, there were a lot of businesses um, started, such as you know the drive now business, the, uh, the car sharing business, the charging or the parking business, which are now, as we all know, merged uh, with Daimler um, and their mobility practices, which I believe was a quite smart move. And uh, for us, it was amazing to make these investments in the space because. It was very easy to connect them with these types of new businesses. The mindset of the people working in these organizations was very uh, similar. They were moving very fast, um, very interesting time. But we had come to the belief that if we wanted to take venture capital, corporate venture capital to the next step and do this real seriously, we have to spin out. We have to adapt our um, business in regards to having the team set up, which is financially incentivized. And we explained that uh, we believe making the greatest sort of strategic value or coming to the greatest strategic value that a venture, corporate venture unit can deliver can only happen if you actually make the best deals and invest in the market, in the companies that transform the market. Those one, two or three outliers, if you want wanted to say so, rather than a bunch of companies that are doing so-so. So going just for strategic value, we we believed as a traditional corporate venture setup where you, you need a corporate sponsor for every investment um, is sort of not what we believe would deliver the biggest value. If you think of a business unit, traditionally, a business unit has a time horizon of maybe now to plus five years. If you think about venture capital, we talk about a lo- much longer time horizon. If you really want to invest in the most disruptive, innovative businesses, you're looking at a 10 years time horizon potentially, right? And um, this was sort of our our belief and why we had pitched to the BMW board that it makes sense to spin out the activities to allow for an autonomous setup where all of the investment decisions are made within the venture team, um, set up a proper fund, set up carry structure for the team and start investing with the best um, uh, funds out there, but also shape our own opportunities by leading our deals, right? The deals where we have the strongest convictions are the deals where we go in full in, lead the deals, define the deals, build really attractive syndicates. That's our absolute core USP in the market where we can bring in a lot of other OEMs because we're financially incentivized 
and create great syndicates, which gives us um, a lot of leverage in the market and the opportunities that we can pursue and um, pretty much just operate um, in the context of the rules of the market. If you want to be a player in this space, you just have to, you know, uh, follow the rules and be a reliable, trustworthy investor and partner. And that's what we did as sort of um, started with on, the, on the journey for, uh, four years ago, three years ago, performed the spin out. And now it's the next big transition. So I spent the last two years um, looking very intensively at what is going to be the next big wave in the mobility space, what's happening in regards to the entire financial market being steered more towards the ESG framework. And obviously, I mean, we have the young kids and, and, and young people going on the streets, marching for, you know, uh, Fridays for Future activities and all of this. Uh, it was quite obvious that regulations will also change in that space. And I just started to look at our portfolio and said, hang on, we're in a, we are a mobility investor. The companies that we have in our portfolio have a very large impact on society and environment. We already invest in autonomous driving and electrification and all of these other themes, which all added up to our mobility um, focus once we performed the spin out, right? And this is a value in the portfolio. We need to help the portfolio companies to leverage this value. We need to make sure that we you know, stand up to the responsibility we have as a deep tech investor with a 500 million euro fund. We invest up between three to 8 million per ticket on average. And this is a lot of firepower that we have in the market. And with the responsibility and the potential value creation that comes, I came to the belief that we need to transition and reposition our fund and also change how we do our business. I connected with a ton of impact investors in the space, learned a lot about the space and um, came to the conviction that this will be the next huge wave in the mobility space. And we're the top fund positioned in the auto and mobility space to, to be a great partner because we can actually tap into the resources of the BMW group, which is known for their sustainability efforts. It's the top priority at the moment. It's one of the first OEMs coming out with fully electrified vehicles. Um, and this is sort of where we are at the moment. This is a practice that I'm building at the moment where I have a lot of focus as the entire team. And this adds up our story. So we still invest in mobility. We're also a deep tech investor. We invest in hardware and software along the production space as well as uh, core um, technologies for the vehicle. And all that happens in a sustainable context where we look at themes such as circular economy, carbon capturing, and other real interesting um, areas that are now growing as um, the entire mobility space is transforming to a more sustainable, uh, sustainable focused, um, you know, um, market perspective. That's super interesting. Um, you basically described how a you are coming from this much more diverse background than probably many people in the industry, certainly in uh, venture capital, and how you basically then entered iVentures with some operator experience, but um, during this phase when it was kind of spun out, became independent. This big by now, five hundred million. Um, venture capital fund with a good portfolio, but and kind of modeling best practices in the industry, but then trying to take it even one step further and thinking what are some of the big topics of the future. And I think you also um, um, yeah communicate um, publicly frequently and so on. And you said at some point um, everybody should probably do that, but only about 
topics that you're passionate about. You are one of the people who is looking at the industry um, not from one product's perspective, like most of us are. We are basically zoomed into one company, one use case, one target group. You are, as an investor, as an internationally working um, investor, traveling um, across this whole industry. And you just mentioned how six years ago, this was somewhat the beginning um, of this uh, whole hype. I think this was around the time when Uber was getting ready to uh, launch in Germany and um, there were pledges made by um, the big OEMs to take this on and invest into this more heavily. How do you see your work um, evolving over this time? How did your focus shift from when you first got started in the field to how broadly or what topics you're looking on today? That's a good question. So initially, when when I started in this industry, and I have to say, uh, iVentures was already around, right? The the fund started the activities in 2011. This was right at the time when the BMW Group has defined themselves as a mobility company, right? So they started mobility related businesses, and which which we all know, uh, drive now, charge now, park now, these type of business, which are now merged with um, Daimler. And they sort of had a venture arm, which is based in New York, to invest in new and upcoming um, startups in this space. And when I joined, um, this was sort of um, the focus. All We speak more about digital uh, business models, the classical mobility models we've seen. The thesis was also very much driven by... Um, a perspective on what's going on and happening in a mobility context within an urban environment, so city uh, focused. And these were the themes that we invested in. And as we have been one of the first funds to invest in this space, we've been able to gather a lot of knowledge. This was super valuable. I would definitely say it didn't hurt back at the time to to be based uh, in the U.S. with a headquarter because we've saw, we saw a lot of business models starting in the U.S. and then uh, coming to Europe. The shift that sort of happened over time has more to do also with our setup. So roughly four years ago, we spinned out the fund. We have sort of learned a lot in the space, but we came to the conviction and thankfully convinced also the BMW board that if we were to do this successfully, we need, um, you know, we need to have the, an autonomous setup where the fund is a separate uh, legal entity, where um, the team is financially incentivized and where a strategic value can be derived from investing actually in the real market makers, the companies that change the game and not just a few companies that are doing so-so. So this was um, a big change for us. Uh, the fund then um, stepped up the game to become a 500 million euro venture capital fund. We moved our headquarters from New York to the Silicon Valley, and we started to invest in the deep tech space. Now we talk already about the second big wave, which is the autonomous driving wave. So this was a time where there was just as much attention as the mobility space initially had on the autonomous uh, driving space. And other than the uh, mobility-related investments, these were very complica uh, complicated deals. So complex tech diligence was required. And this was a clear USB of iVentures because iVentures still is set up in a way where it could tap into the engineer resources of the BMW group. And this really changed our game. We've made great investments very, very, very good portfolio. If you take a look at our current portfolio on our website, there are seven unicorns in the portfolio. We have clearly proved 
that we can be a financially very attractive fund with a corporate LP and that this actually works and that you can bring and combine the best of sort of both worlds. And this was the second wave. And now we're sort of in the midst of what I'd call the third wave. And this is something that I'm particularly passionate about is this is a wave that I sort of um, steered and that I influenced massively through my conviction that the entire venture capital space is going to change towards um, a space where sustainability and responsibility will be more important and where the responsibility of a venture capitalist in regards to the investments that um, the fund makes will be very important going forward, not just in sort of the LP conversations, but in the entire stakeholder conversation. And this is where the fund is at the moment, sort of we invest in the future of mobility, we invest in production technologies, we invest in a lot of sustainable themes, and we're still a sort of financially steered fund with a corporate LP and sort of deliver strategic value to this corporate LP um, through this unique setup. So that's a really interesting journey that you just um, traced basically from um, this single LP corporate venture capital um, setup integrated in BMW to becoming about four years ago an independent fund and much larger, 500 million. Um, and then the focus I'm um, shifting in the topics that you're looking at. I know that um, when we talked also many times before, you have your own perspective on um, the venture capital um, scene. And um, you've been kind of vocal and outspoken about also um, criticizing maybe the diversity or lack thereof in um, venture capital and uh, maybe a pure focus on returns over tackling sort of also more longer term issues and investing in sustainability and longer term issues. How do you manage to square this circle in this probably even more difficult setup with just a single LP and then probably some corporate interest also um, going into your work? Or are you managing to shield this off entirely? So where do you take the freedom to take this long term perspective? It, it is never easy if you are in a corporate venture space. So um, having said that, it is always sort of a balance where you have to make sure that just without any other LP, there is a strong and good relationship, which is fruitful for both sides. So I've mentioned already, we benefit massively from being close to the BMW group, not just in the way how we make deals and how we are capable actually of um, diligence and deals, but also in the, in, in the fact that, you know, a lot of our portfolio companies might have BMW as a customer or might become a tier two. So there is a close relationship. There's a lot that the startups can learn from a professional OEM such as BMW and vice versa. So it is all about brokering sort of this uh, relationship, which is where I see strong focus on my work. So for both sides, there are valuable pieces, but both sides will only come together if the framework sort of is provided. And this is what we do in our platform practice. We focus a lot on the partnership piece and creating strong partnerships between our portfolio companies and the BMW group, but also the wider automotive ecosystem. A lot of our portfolio companies work with a lot of other OEMs. We co-invest with other OEMs. So this is a whole really new perspective on the, uh, on the automotive industry. It's more a collaborative, partnership-oriented approach, which is where I see the future of the automotive space anyways. So that makes a lot of sense for us in the venture world and for our portfolio companies. It's super attractive. It's 
it's a lot in regards so the BMW brand obviously generates trust it's a very valuable brand it's great to be associated with a brand but there are also a lot of very tangible um, benefits that come along with working with the network that BMW has in regards to the engineers or suppliers um, there are so many benefits that come if you provide the right platform for this value to be leveraged and that's sort of what we do with our platform practice that I'm um, heading globally and it is nevertheless, though, always a challenge. You need to find the right balance in building a trusted relationship with your LP. And then obviously, as this is the BMW group, this is an, a large organization. We are closely connected to the BMW group board and sort of exchange uh, in regards to our, um, you know, perspective on the market, what we see happening in the market, the trends that we see. And it is sort of our role to make sure that these insights are being distributed in the wider group context and are not sort of stuck at a top management level. They are relevant to a lot of people in the group. And whether this being us, you know, from time to time writing an article or sharing a podcast ourselves or, you know, presenting at a BMW related event, this is our mandate. This is why we are here. And it's part of being a professional corporate venture capital arm. So you have a pretty large um, portfolio, um, 500 million euro fund. Obviously, you mentioned nine unicorns. There were several IPOs that were taking place in your portfolio already. If you think back to the very successful investments that you and your team made in the last years, how did you get involved with these teams in the beginning? Is there any kind of pattern that you can recognize about um, what has to come together to identify teams that will then be really successful? Or yeah. is that something that you can't, like have almost no chance to tell in the beginning and then you just kind of, have to build this portfolio and get lucky with some of them. Yeah, so we're definitely not in the business of uh, spray and pray. So just making some mm -hmm. random investments and then just hope for the best in the future. We are thesis-driven investor. We are late-stage investor. I have mentioned that at the beginning. So out of our 500 million euro venture capital fund, we invest um, on average between three to eight million per ticket and have um, 50 plus portfolio companies um, at the moment. With seven unicorns, you have said nine. So let's hope for by the time okay. this goes uh, live, maybe there will be nine. But um, uh, sort of this is sort of our, our um, setup, and uh, obviously just with any other VC, your network is key uh, in order to sort of um, know about uh, interesting companies in order to be able to position yourself in order to get into the best companies. It's not just your fund. It's quite often the syndicate that you create. So there are a couple of deals that we have been able to make because we let them and we created a really attractive syndicate of you know, um, players from the automotive space. So as mentioned, we are co-invested with Daimler, we co-invested with Ford, we co-invested with Toyota, we are co-invested with a lot of other OEMs. And this is super attractive. There are some companies that sort of have the fear they don't want to be labeled uh, by being tied to just one OEM, specifically in the deep tech space, specifically in the autonomous driving space, for example. And you can prevent this um, by creating such a syndicate, for example. And on the other side, you're just you know, creating a very attractive uh, deal uh, this way. And as we are now in a setup where we lead uh, a lot of our deals, we, we are in a position to do that. That's standard. You just have to have a really valuable network. Um, but besides that, we are thesis-driven investors. So whenever we look into a new space, let's say, for example, circular economy or carbon capturing, we create what we call a deep dive, which is a perspective 
integrated in the team around the market, um, where which then actually leads to us um, having a conviction about a certain space and a thesis and how we would invest in a short list, a watch list of companies that we believe are super hot. We have to negotiate and hunt for the best deals just as any other investor has to do. The best startups, I can just repeat that, have the choices. The startups that have you know, the, the, the best setup uh, or have the traction, they can choose their investors. And it's our role as an investor to make ourselves attractive to them. It, that reminds me of kind of a story when, when we also had um, some interactions some, some years ago. And um, I was sort of on the Wunder Mobility side and co uh, sort of raising with my co-founder, Sam, we, um, we met a, a lot of investors, like dozens, probably, I think around CSA, we said we had 35 partner rounds that ended in a no, maybe one person wanted, but the others didn't. And then finally like a yes. And then it kind of um, began. And um, we had interactions with iVentures. And I remember, I think I was briefing um, Sam that, um, your colleagues at the time were going extremely deep. Like I said, I remember I said, they know the driver recruiting process at Lyft. So like, watch out before we meet them because they were really, really um, in the know. And I think, yeah, that kind of relates to what you said about like thesis driven investments. It's not the kind of approach, here's a meta topic and then let's go like very broad, but have very strong um, own opinions. And then you mentioned the other aspect, having that network so that you can put sort of an alliance together or um, a group of investors together um, that is then very attractive to the target. I think that many people listening also um, on the podcast are in the industry and are probably also thinking about how do I build my own network more um, because you joined a strong brand, but you also have built your own um, brand. You stand for certain topics. You are frequently asked to join a speaker and so on. Um, how did that happen? And to what extent can... Um, Can people sort of build their own brand? How do you do that? Do you have to mm. um, follow certain sort of steps or how does that happen? Oh, oh boy, you're just coming up with a really big and broad questions. But let me try to uh, sort of cover this because I, I, I agree. I think this is super relevant. So first of all, let me start with um, saying it is very easy to build up a network in the venture space because this is a space where there are a lot of um, codependencies where, you know, you don't learn about new deals if you just sit in a room and don't talk to people. So this is a space where you're constantly in exchange. There are a lot of ways to connect, specifically for the young folks that might be listening in, that might be thinking about maybe joining a fund on an associate level or so. There are a ton of um, possibilities to build a network. But this is just quantity. In order to get to quality, you obviously you have to give And you then you can take. It's not just a one-way street. This is what a lot of people get wrong about networking in general. So if you provide valuable insights, if you sort of provide, um, you know, relevant information on certain deals, then you can also ask people and, you know, get their input. A lot of we're making decisions in a space which is a high uncertainty space, right? A lot of risks. So you depend on a lot of different opinions in order to build up a conviction about a certain deal. There's just as much data available. If it's a late stage deal, you'll obviously have more. But if it's an early stage deal, you won't. You probably have to go with what you think about the team and what others think about the team and sort of how strong the team appears to be. Because as you know yourself best, going to You'll pivot over time, as, as just as your company did, right? Um, and that makes a ton of sense. So if the team is strong, this will 
happen and this will um, happen in a way which is, you know, successful. So um, let's say that that much about the network. So it's possible. Uh, I have always focused sort of on having great content, great substance, making sure that I can build up um, the network. I have to say, though, that I'm in this space now for 10 years and I was more sort of on the startup uh, end before joining iVentures. I always worked for large corporates that, you know, sort of bought um, or invested in, in, in startups, particularly in my case in uh, Tel Aviv. And I have always worked with these companies very uh, strongly, had PL responsibility, and was more on the operator side. So I, I joined this job with having a large network in the startup world. I didn't have a network in the venture capital world, and I built that up, and it's absolutely doable. You don't have to be naive about it. So I'm going to be really honest about this. People do not share voluntarily tons of their contacts, specifically often your peers. So everyone is going to try to protect the network, uh, being like, yeah, these are my contacts or people are trying to keep the partner contacts or whatsoever. So I don't want to be naive about this. This is a shark tank. It is true. Um, but uh, generally, if, if you get beyond that stage, sort of, uh, and if you connect with the people that are actually willing to connect and open-minded and exchange, it's possible to build it up. Um, the second part of the question was, how do you build up your brand? You have to have content. You have to have something to say. So there is no point in going on a stage and having nothing to say. So this is where it all starts. So it all starts as where are you an expert? Where do you have a perspective? Um, I frequently see those type of event tourists, as I always call them. They're on every stage. They talk about everything. You know what? Nobody knows everything. It's impossible. So if you have an area of expertise where you have a conviction, Make sure that you get the message out. You don't have to be on a stage if you are not comfortable being on the stage or not comfortable in overcoming your fears, which might be related to being on a stage or nervousness or whatsoever. Well, then you might want to create a great sort of, you know, blog or you might want to post more on LinkedIn. So the positioning and the messaging needs to be super, super clear. Obviously, there are a ton of PR uh, agencies that you could work with, but for most of the people, it's just common sense. Just sit down and think about it. what is your message? What do you stand for? What is the change actually you want to see? I saw a lot of speakers and a lot of people in this space that talk about things that they are not passionate about. And people know you need to talk about things you love. You need to be passionate and curious about these themes. Then you will consciously, you know, develop new content and then you can share it in an authentic way. If you don't do it this way, it's just going to be boring as hell. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And I want to build on that. And let's take a sort of step um, into the broader industry, um, looking at what happened in the last years and some of the um, outlook. Basically, you mentioned you spend a lot of time first as an operator, then as an investor in mobility, different places. Your company, iVentures, is headquartered in Silicon Valley. You worked in Tel Aviv before. Now you're based in, in uh, Munich and um, leading, I think, the iVentures team in Europe. Um, what is a development in the last two, three years that you saw over here in Europe in mobility that surprised you that you hadn't anticipated despite all the sort of data that you had um, available and the network that you had? What was something that even surprised you? It is hard to say that sort of certain developments surprised me. If you narrow it down to a certain ecosystem like Germany, to be honest. So um, let me try to answer in a different way. Uh, 
what is great to see here in the German ecosystem that through the experience that founders make by starting their first company, second and third, failing maybe here and there, the ecosystem is developing. I think we are we overcame already the stigma or the stereotype of being the copycats, the worldwide copycats that just do what others do. And that was the beginning of the ecosystem for sure. Uh, nobody can doubt that. And I think this is where I just see in development, which I really like. People are coming up with their own ideas. They're trying new things. There is nothing wrong about looking at more developed ecosystems and trying to, you know, grasp some inspiration about what type of business models are, you know, uh, gaining traction. But then you have to take it to your local context. And it's a lot tougher in any, uh, in any country here in Europe to start a big company if you don't have a large market like the US. It is not that easy. But if you look at Tel Aviv, for example, as you've mentioned before, the market there is so tiny that every entrepreneur in Tel Aviv's thinking globally from the get-go, from the very beginning of the company. So what I see here in Germany quite often still is that people are focusing on, on getting things perfect or getting things super right. Uh, and just in Germany, they don't think about the scale um, or, or scale up phase of the company. Uh, it's trended, picked up, which I think is also not bad, is that I see more and more German startups they're looking to fund uh, to fundraise early on with international funds. I think this is a good thing. This definitely helps with valuation. There is a reason why there are so many U.S. funds now fishing here in Europe because valuations are low compared to the U.S. So um, that is something that I like. And then in the overall sort of deep tech wave that we have seen in the last years, there are some clear competences in a country which is rich in regards to engineers. Um, and there's more development um, in this space, for example, in the robotic space. And that is great. And I think this is where we talked before about personal branding. And there is something like personal branding also in the startup space where a German CEO definitely will be more recognized if it's an engineer, engineer heavy business, because there's a stereotype that there are tons of great engineers in Germany. And obviously that is going to work. There are some smart um, CEOs that already leverage that knowledge in terms of, you know, how they call the companies and how they go to market. And, and these are developments that I like. Uh, we definitely see more development in the Berlin uh, ecosystem in regards to mobility, because there's more been tested out, you know, governmental officials have been more willing to test out things and give out permits and these types of things. But generally saying, when I look at the mobility space, Germany in Europe is not the leading mobility ecosystem. But again, just look at Tel Aviv, how things picked up there in the autonomous driving space and how many companies started businesses in that space. This, this was a, almost a movement within a year. There were tons from fully hardcore focus on cyber, then shifting from the cyber um, enterprise space into the cyber auto space, and then leveraging tons of other companies um, or starting with tons of other companies in the autonomous driving space. So this is where I see that other ecosystems are sometimes maybe moving a bit faster but overall, we, we can be super proud here because things are happening. Berlin is recognized internationally as a, a startup hub. Uh, a lot of funds move there. A lot of companies move there. So there is development uh, and we are overcoming the pure e-commerce e focused space. I would personally hope and specifically people that know me and listening to this podcast know that I'm vocal about this, that there's going to be hopefully 
less bullshit talk in the future, specifically in Berlin, because independently on, on the startup ecosystem, we all learning, we all developing over time. There's a lot to be proud of, but there's always a lot to be, lot to learn. You know, there's a point in why people, you know, should be maybe sometimes also a little humble. And this is not, uh, go, this is not contrary to, to saying that we should, you know, talk about what we can do well. But if you've just launched like two, three e-commerce businesses, you may be not the rock star serial entrepreneur that can now just jump on the next deep tech company. And maybe you are not the next Elon Musk or Steve Jobs. I meet way too many wannabe Elon Musk or Steve Jobs in ecosystems in Europe then I meet in others uh, outside. And I think this has to do with the fact that, you know, sometimes it's a maybe a copy of that bullshit bingo you, we hear from other ecosystems, but we don't need that. I, I believe strongly in authenticity. We need just to need, we need to be authentic about what we know. We have to own what we know, go, go out in the market and talk about that and not pretending to be someone else or something else or feeling, you know, kind of an entrepreneurial dream or stereotype, which was created in another ecosystem. We, which, we just need to be authentic. Which regions in the world um, would you say are the top ecosystems for mobility that maybe once Corona is over and we travel again, that do recommend people in mobility, if they have a chance, should also travel to? Which are the so, really top global ecosystems in your mind? It depends pretty much on your business. So yeah. uh, I would definitely say if you are in a deep tech space uh, and you are from Europe, uh, the closest to travel to is Tel Aviv. Um, it's a very developed, it's an amazing ecosystem. I've met a lot of really impressive entrepreneurs uh, in, in my time in Tel Aviv. Um, there is no way in being in a mobility space and not looking to Asia. Um, what we see in China and the development in the last years, specifically in the mobility space, is phenomenal. Um, and this is a space every entrepreneur, independent of mobility, I would advise if you have the possibility, if there's a way for you, spend some time in, in Asia and, and learn how this uh, giant is growing and, and sort of how business has been conducted there. Uh, then obviously um, the valley is still super relevant and it makes a ton of sense um, for people to spend some time there. It is not completely impossible, you know, just even if it's just a couple of months uh, and connecting in this space, there are a lot of very smart people um, in a very dense uh, uh, ecosystem as, as the valley. It's tiny. Um, and that makes a lot of sense as well. But it, it depends whether you are sort of more in a digital business model space or more in a deep tech space. Um, but traveling and broadening the, the horizon and speaking to other founders who you can learn from. Uh, is always well advised. And I know, Gunnar, that you particularly done that a lot with your team, yeah. and specifically uh, China. And uh, we talked lots about how, how that, you know, was inspiring for, for, for you and your team and your mm -hmm. business visions. That's right. Yeah. Um, we kind of make a fun out of it when we say we have um, one first opportunity to go somewhere and then just contact a lot of other people that are probably very interesting and say we are in in town anyhow can we meet and basically everybody says yes so that way once you have um three days in beijing you pack those three days um and basically meet the whatever head of strategy for diddy and uh, founder of ofo and so on and you think i mean i have no maybe direct connection to them would they even answer my maybe linkedin message or something but they mm -hmm. actually do and you'll be like really surprised standing um in an office that looks just like 
an office in San Francisco and it's like in Beijing and they are talking yeah. about ambition levels that you can almost not, like you, you, you think you might have misheard what they're talking about. It's extremely, it's extremely valuable to travel like this. And yeah. I agree. And I think my perception is that, um, why things are moving in the right direction in Germany for sure. I'm not sure if we are sort of closing the gap or if it's more um, broadening, but, um, yeah, unfortunately, definitely we're still a little bit on a different space. And I think there's no obvious limitation why that should be the case. So, I mean, what do you think it would take to unlock that and potentially see a kind of, you know, tech boom even in um, Germany that of the kind that maybe, for example, Tel Aviv has experienced? Is that even possible or what would it take? What are the major hurdles and how could somebody working in this space help to unlock that? Oh, here we go again. One of these huge questions, right? <laughs> Sorry. So, um, and, no, but it's relevant. Look, and there's much discussion needed in regards to what does the startup ecosystem need to develop. So there are parts which are maybe in your hands or in your control if you're a founder in regards to how you think, how you build up your company. I would sort of build up a company as global as possible from the get-go. The best, um, you know, engineers or the best, the best tech talent might not be in your ecosystem. And there is not technically a need to have everyone in one office. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Not that it just brings you a lot of cost um, competitiveness, but it also sort of, you know, creates an international um, company culture from the beginning. And I think this makes a lot of sense if you have global ambitions. Um, Germany as a market or just the German speaking markets are for many companies just too small as a market. So there will be the time when they have to scale out. And it's, it's tough. I've just seen it so many times that companies build up their business and it definitely works in a German speaking environment, but then they are so stuck in how they used to do business and they haven't really created um, you know, blueprints or playbooks, which you can use for rollouts in other markets. And then they never make it over that sort of first barrier and they are stuck on, on, on that sort of, um, growth level. And that is something that you can do as an entrepreneur. And we, we talked about traveling, connecting and learning from other ecosystems from the get go, from the beginning. There are a lot of upsides that come when you are based in Europe in regards to, you know, a lot of, um, large uh, corporates, um, maybe also sometimes corporates from spaces which are under pressure, which can be an opportunity, not just in regards to, yeah, well, I'm just going to disrupt them and disrupt their space or the bullshit uh, talk we hear all the time, but potentially also in partnering, right? So um, that could be a benefit. There are a lot of sort of opportunities that come with how you do business. If you are in a mobility space, it is super relevant to create good relationships with governmental officials because they are quite often the ones that have the possibility to put a lot of limitations on your company's growth or, you know, just speed up the growth of the company. So having that type of open dialogue where maybe you could leverage your European background and being a more sort of trustworthy partner. Um, you know, there are topics such as data protection, where definitely if you are a European player, this is something that will come that will be close to your DNA. You might uh, generate more trust maybe than a player from, from China. So what I'm trying to sort of to bring across here, that there are a lot of topics which are close to your sort of positioning, if you are a founder from Europe, which you can uh, leverage to your benefits. But then in ecosystem building, 
has a lot of other layers. There's a lot that has to happen on the regulatory side. Um, just look at the tax laws we have here in Germany. They're a nightmare when it comes to um, making sure that the people that are a part of your company can actually benefit um, from the shares that you want to give them. And there are a lot of other things that need to come in place. Then universities have, um, you know, a specific role. And we now just slowly see more and more spin-offs from universities, for example, in, 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 uh, in Zurich, um, becoming, you know, getting some real traction and being spinned out in a way where they're actually investable. So what I'm trying to say is there are a lot of things that need to come in place in order to build up an ecosystem. Given that we're in an all digitally connected world now, there is an opportunity, a fair opportunity to build up ecosystems way faster faster than the Silicon Valley grow, faster than Tel Aviv grow, or faster than uh, Asia grow, technically. But we just still need to see this happen. And as an entrepreneur, there's just as much as you can put on your plate. You still have to stay focused. But the examples we have mentioned are already things where you can, you know, uh, take the first step. Yeah, I think the easiest thing you can do is um, try to basically just act very internationally. I mean, if you're, if you're not happy about the size of the investor community in Germany, then you have to unfortunately travel and just get in, invest internationally and the same in your team, basically. Um, try to hire globally and then benefit of the super high quality of life here to convince people to come. But yeah, it is kind of, a, I think, a big uh, a challenge and open question if we will really have these strong e-techs system uh, tech ecosystems in the future here and i think that a lot of um wealth um is tied to it but also wealth currently is tied to the oems um and this whole automotive um industry ecosystem and i guess there everybody knows how that came even more under pressure um this year with the covid recession and sort of uh new car sales are uh, crashing and so on when you um look at OEMs, um, how they've been in some cases, like in BMW's case, very early to the game and tipped their toes into this and been very early to EVs initially. Um, but now um, in the situation where maybe uh, they're getting more under pressure, resources are getting probably um, less due to um, the sales declines and so on. Do you worry about the future and the market leadership of our German OEMs? Worry is, is definitely the wrong word. I mean, there are a lot of um, challenges in the market uh, from the shift to autonomy, to electrification. And, and now just recently uh, the hits through um, the COVID pandemic. But this is actually what spices up a market. So it's all about the competences that an OEM needs to acquire and build up and how fast they can do this. So um, technically speaking, in the future, I see um, partnerships becoming absolutely essential. Key, you cannot build everything on your own, but there will be some competences that you might want to have in-house, some specific tech competences that you need to have in-house in order to participate in the value creation that comes from all of the data that will be generated through um, the vehicles on the street and the future or in, in order to build up a relationship actually to a customer, a customer interface where you can offer relevant services to your customers. In the past, 
OEMs did not have the customer relationship. They were, they were selling the cars to the dealerships and the dealerships would have the customer interaction. And then the banks, the, the OEM uh, banks would have customer um, relationships, the ones that, you know, um, give out the leasing cars. So this is all new to the industry. So, um, and, and that is challenging, but I definitely think if, if you look at what is connecting all of these themes, it is a very rapid capacity to build up competences in tech space. It is um, the visionary mindset, if you want to say so, to look constantly for new business opportunities and shifting away from just doing one thing very excellent, but looking to new business opportunities in future value creation and the capability of partnering. And partnering is something which we've seen a lot in the autonomous driving space. This is, a, this is um, a task so complex and so enormous that you just can't do it on your own. And the competence of partnering in this space um, with startups, with tech companies, with players from other industries will be key. This is something which I see as absolutely doable. It is just up to the culture in these organizations and this is irrespectively of the bmw group this 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 accounts for every large uh, organization if you're under pressure and you have to change it is up to your culture and how strong your culture is and how if uh, what your willingness and cap uh, capacity to adapt this and particularly what fascinates you with the bmw group is that we've just seen it over time in, in multiple situations that this company can adapt very fast and therefore, I have my uh, hopes high um, with uh, with the capacity of the BMW Group to to sort of um, adapt to this space. It's a very interesting view. You basically, well, I mean, it's surprising if you say right now nowadays we wouldn't have to worry about the OEMs, but you say we wouldn't have to worry if um, OEMs manage to acquire new competencies fast enough. But because that's such a broad scope of competencies probably it can go in some ways through partnering partnerships whether partnerships can be formed depends on the culture that is um that is there whether um, that's outward yeah. looking and trust building and basically kind of able to innovate in networks if i understand correctly <laughs> Exactly. And that's, just, you know, I've been in this corporate startup sort of intersectional for 10 plus years, right? Mm -hmm. So this is irrespectively of the industry. Mm -hmm. um, if a large corporate wants to innovate successfully, it is crucial that there are certain competences in the company, but also the willingness to, to take an innovation from outside in um, and sort of to partner in the space. And you have to overcome the not invented here syndrome. And you have to find vehicles that actually find a way to bring in innovation from all relevant spaces into the organization. And then this will be only relevant if then the organization picks up this topic, if there isn't a barrier. Uh, sometimes I'm quite often asked about sort of how can corporates collaborate with startups and startups with corporates and so on. And I always ask the corporate CEOs, are you aware of the Teflon effect? 
So they're always looking at what you mean, Teflon effect. It's like, no matter how much innovation is thrown your direction, there's a Teflon effect and it will not, you know, uh, go through and not be picked up. Have you, have you ever considered um, building up an organization that helps to break through those corporate barriers? And this is needed. Uh, what I've seen so many times, the corporate have those funky, cool innovation departments, people walking around and funny clothes, being all startup-like. But if, if these are sort of rare creatures, the entire organism of the corporate will fight them. It's just like a DNA, it's just like a body. It's like a, you know, organism. Something comes in that's completely strange and it looks very different and the alarm system, the immune system goes, you know, <laughs> it's going to fight against it. So there is no point in just having that one funky innovation department. You have to build a structure in your organization where all of the departments are sort of catered to take in this um in a, a innovative approaches where you overcome the not emitted here syndrome and where you have a target system. Large corporations work through target systems. You have to have a target system that sort of um, incentivize uh, inno innovative thinking and incentivize potentially sustainable um, uh, thinking in terms of uh, your, your business operations. There are a lot of um, important areas that you want to cover uh, and, and, and it's just important to look inside and not be blind to what's going on within your organization. This is so much easier if it's a tiny organization, you're a small startup, less than 100 people, uh, all doable. And I think it's very, very easy to judge these large corporates, but these are enormous organizations. And I just like to think about them like an organism and like, try to, you know, find a way of how can you sort of um, bring in nutrition, if you want to say so, uh, innovative nutrition, so the entire organism can benefit from it. That's a super interesting view. Basically getting the big organism that is um, a corporate to be able to acquire competencies um, and partner by influencing the culture, but not basically in very different ways, but in ways that also blend in and that are accepted by the organization. Thanks for sharing, Sohela, about iVentures, the success that your team's having over there, and then also your own story, your own path to this position and your sort of interest um, and how broadly you're going also with initiatives. Maybe um, before we uh, wrap up, um, is there anything that you want to leave our community with? Um, I, I would like to just spread some hope and some positivity in regards to all of the opportunities which are out there if you would like to become a part of the venture capital and startup world. This is a world which really lacks in diversity in every ecosystem that I know. Um, there are so many opportunities out there if you dare to try to enter this space. There are great initiatives, for example, in the VC space, such as Included VC, which help um, folks with diverse backgrounds to tap into uh, this space. And we need that. If you, if you thrive for innovation and making the great best deals, you can ha cannot ha actually risk to, to have group thinking and to have an investment committee, which is just all white old men. Um, and, and, and that is sort of what, what I'd like to sort of, um, share here. There needs to be more diversity. There needs to be also specifically here in Germany. I'd love to see more founders with, um, you know, parents that, that initially came from other countries and started um, their lives here. These um, 
potential founders, they almost have it in their DNA. Their parents' generation took enormous risks to come to this country and build up the, uh, their, their future. And while there is a lot of pressure on this generation to, to thrive and to be successful and to make the best out of these opportunities, these are also folks that have seen that you can take large risks and that you can be successful and have a sort of level of resilience that can help them to become really successful entrepreneurs. But in order to have this founder generation activated, we need more VCs with um, diverse backgrounds that actually dare to invest in these founders. Uh, we cannot risk to have too much bias in the investment decision process and have folks that just continuously invest in the same type of people that sort of they relate to. And that is a bias that almost every person have, no matter how good your intentions are. And that is something that, I, that I'm a strong advocate for because I, I feel like there's a huge potential which is un, untapped yet and... Um, I would love to see more, more founders with diverse backgrounds also here in, in Germany. Absolutely. And I think that goes a lot through role models. Who can you actually talk to and maybe um, exchange ideas with or just even um, observe and think, well, I guess if he can do it, if she can do it, then probably I can. Um, but um, I think you are basically um, not only making the, um, the claim and challenging people, but also um, open to probably talking to whoever sees himself in that shoes and is not um, sure yet if um, that can be them. How could they reach you if somebody uh, was um, feeling like they would love to talk to you and maybe don't have a Series A startup yet that they can pitch to you? I mean, obviously, uh, I receive a ton of interest through people that just know me and that know that I'm quite active mentoring a lot of sort of um, early stage founders. Um, but then there are the standard channels such as LinkedIn and so on to, to, to reach me. Obviously, I cannot work with everyone, but I really try to do my very best not just to talk the talk, but also walk the walk. And that's why I'm, I'm sort of taking the stage and, and talking about um, encouraging people to, to, to start a career in the venture capital or startup world irrespectively of their backgrounds. If you have the right talents, if you have the right mindset, you can be successful. And this is no bullshit talk like dreaming the American dream or whatever. Um, you know, it, you are shaping your future. And if you have the right talent and if you have uh, the skill set that is needed, you can go for it. We live in a quite open society here. We have so many opportunities. If we just stay authentic and focus on our strength, and that is, that is an, a future which is open to everyone. Thankfully, um, here in Germany and in, in, in other European um, uh, countries. Well, it was great to talk to you again today. Best of luck on all these ventures and adventures and stay safe. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you.